Welcome back uh, to our last session today. I wish I'd had some time to uh, edit this session uh, to make it a little bit more um, precise for what we need to do, but uh, be, as, uh, uh, be as, as it is that the Lord is going to bless us and is going to be with us in that process. Um, several of you had questions and I try to answer that. If you have other questions right now that we could answer uh, right away, uh, we've gotten a microphone now because uh, we're, done stre we're streaming this live uh, on the internet, you know that, so your, your beautiful voices are being heard sometimes. So we want to make sure that they are. Are there any questions that, that are still hanging over from, from the last session that you want to ask? And um, we'll, get, we'll get this microphone to you. Anybody? Yes, there's one out there. We, we chose a man who is extremely quick on his feet. Yes. It seems to lighten, to lighten. To it seems to take sin lightly. Is that what you mean? Um, when we are dead to sin, you see. Remember the two natures. This is this is important background. Remember the two natures. We were born with a sinful nature. And that sinful nature has gotten worse as our life has gone on because we have chosen many times to sin. So uh, we're sinful by heredity, we're sinful by habit. But when we're born again, when we say yes to Jesus, when we're justified by grace, when we say, God, we are opening our hearts to you, my heart to you, Lord. When we're born again, there's a new nature. Now you don't see that, it doesn't have a different color, it doesn't have a different feel, it is something that you've got to believe because what, this is what God says. Hmm? And if you confess your sins, you know, you're, it's equivalent to that, confess your sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all righteousness. You know, I don't feel cleansed necessarily. Sometimes you may, sometimes God may do something supernatural that you may feel something, but most of the times that's not the case. So you have two natures. Two. Okay? If you reckon this nature, the sinful nature, as dead, what do you have left? You have the nature that is a spiritual nature. That nature needs to keep growing. Why? Because this thing keeps popping up. It has sort of a resurrection life of its own. And, and, and that's why you need to constantly live by faith. Living by faith, some people believe, some people believe, believe you know, I already said I am a Christian, I already give my life to God. That's enough. No, that's not enough. Um, somebody put it this way. I am say I was saved 2,000 years ago. That would be a correct statement, but an incomplete statement. Do you see the difference? I was saved 2,000 years ago. When Jesus died for me, He died for me, even though I wasn't born. He died for the sinner. I was saved 2,000 years ago. I am being saved today, as Christ lives in me. 
as I surrender to Him, and I will be saved when Jesus comes. So that is the best way to say, I am saved. I, I cannot say I'm saved or I was saved. I have to say, I am being saved. And I'm being saved is a moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, decision making process. And the more we decide and say, I, I surrender to you, the, you know, I'm, I'm saved. I, and that grows, that spiritual nature grows. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And the stronger the spiritual nature gets, the weaker this one gets. Because you don't pay attention to it. You're not feeding it. You're feeding this one. And so that's a natural thing. I don't know if that answers or that helps. Yeah, okay. Question, a question here. There's a previous lecture, can you give us some of your personal comments on Paul's words when he said, saved by hope, you know, hope, make it not ashamed, these words. Is that Romans 5? You're thinking of Romans 5? Romans 5 and I think 8 as well. Okay. Um, it, you know, without going into the, the whole context of that, hope, hope, hope leads, it's, it's related. Love, hope, and faith are all integrally related. Hmm? And, and so, you hope because you trust. Right? You don't hope on something that you don't, you don't trust. If you don't trust it, you're not hoping for it. And so it, it's, uh, it, it's really talking in, in, in the same way. You, you're saved by hope. It doesn't mean that you're saved by something different than what you're being saved by. It, it's simply an aspect of saying, I, I'm, I'm, I, really, I really believe that I, 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 I have confidence in what's going to happen in the future based on the fact that I'm trusting God. I know I'm trusting God, and so He will, he will secure that future. I can have hope for that. Hmm? In the back. You know, I'd like to comment to what she was saying. You know, how do you know that you're dead or you're dead in sin? This is an example of my own experience. I was impatient, extremely impatient mother. And I kept praying and being patient and praying for forgiveness and continued. Finally, I realized I do not believe that mm. Jesus really delivered me so when I went to him again that morning in prayer, I said, I believe. You delivered me, I believe. I trust. And about three hours later, of course, I had that experience of being patient again. And when I fell, I said, you did deliver me. I have no questions there. There was an avenue that faith took that I did not see. Show me that avenue so I can close the door to that avenue. And then when we shut that door, when it came up again, I said, okay, there was another avenue. Show me that avenue if I can close that. Beautiful. So I kept shutting those avenues as God showed, and then the patience went away. Praise because God. Because God had already delivered, but I couldn't see it, and I needed to just trust. Thank you for sharing that testimony. That's very helpful. Uh, and, and notice what she says, and this is important. Um, it, it, her tendency is our tendency, which is to live by proof. In other words, we don't live by faith. We live by proof. The proof is, you know, I don't sin anymore. And that must mean that I'm dead to sin. We can't wait for that. That's not how the Bible teaches it. That's why the Bible teaches it. Reckon yourself. You know, when it says in, in James, it uses the same expression. Count yourself joyful when you face various trials. 
Well, obviously, you're not going to be joyful when you face various trials. But reckon yourself happy about it, in spite of the fact that you don't feel that way. That'll start making a difference. That is what it means to live by faith. Hmm? And so when it says, reckon yourself dead to sin, that's a very good example. He says, I said that God, you know, it'll keep popping up. It'll keep popping up. You know, that sin thing, it'll keep popping up. But until you say, no, no, wait a minute. I said, God, that I'm giving myself to you. I'm, I'm dead to that. And, and so that's why the verb in Hebrews 12 is fix your eyes on Jesus and not take a casual look at him. Fix it. it what that means is don't dare look away. Because as soon as you look away, you find reasons to believe that things are not working. But when you keep looking to Him, then that distraction, which is the most powerful, this is a very important tool the devil has. The, devil, the devil's basic tool is distraction. He just gets you to look away from God. Just as soon as he can get you to look away from God, he has you. So, yes. Last comment or question, and then we're going to get going. You're going to read all of those? No, just okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, it says, Do you ask, how am I to abide in Christ? In the same way as you received him at first. Right. So that's the first thing. Uh, the next one is commit the keeping of your soul to God and trust in him. Talk and think of Jesus. Let self be lost in him. Put away all doubt. Dismiss your fears. Say with the apostle, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who that's loved right. me that's right. and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. Rest in God. He is able to keep that which you have committed to him. On the other hand, it says, Satan will constantly present allurements to induce us to break this time. Right. To choose to separate ourselves from Christ. Here is where we need to watch, to strive, to pray, that nothing may entice us to choose another master. For we are always free to do this, but let us keep our eyes fixed upon Christ and he'll preserve us. Looking to Jesus, we are safe. Then, if Christ is willing, is dwelling in our hearts, he will work in us both, quote, to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians right. 2.13. We shall work as he works. We shall manifest the same spirit. And thus, loving him and abiding in him, we shall grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Thank you. Um, remember that chapter in abiding, which is chapter 15 of John, you know, and I am the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me. Says, and then you will bear much fruit. And what fruit is that? Uh, principally, is the fruit of the Spirit. If you abide in Him, you know, He gives you nourishment, He gives you life, and then you will produce what the vine is meant for the branches to produce. But what's the issue? It's an interesting verb Jesus used, abide in me. That's sort of an old English word that we don't use a great deal today. What does it mean? 
To abide in me means to hang on to me. Because that's exactly what the devil does. Visualize this with me, a, a vine with branches. What the devil does is the equivalent of the, of the wind and the rain and the sleet and the bugs. Everything that tries to get that branch loosened from the vine. Why loosened? Because it was not a natural appendage to begin with. Do you follow? In other words, we are branches of Jesus, not because we were born in the vine. We were grafted in to Jesus. We were born in sin. Our father, Jesus said, is the devil. You know, in, in, in reference to our life. We were grafted in. And as long as we're grafted in, we are weaker. I mean, the connection is weaker. It is not a natural connection. It needs to become natural. And that's why we're told to abide, to hang on to it. To hang on to it. Because our natural tendency is to reject it. Just like a transplant, you know, a heart transplant or a liver transplant or something like that. What is the biggest problem with the person that benefits from the transplant? The rejection. The rejection of the organ. It, even though the body will have life because of the transplant, it wants to kill the source of life. That's why the one word we need to hang on to, 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 to really practice, abide, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. And what that means is just keep looking to Him, keep looking to Him, refuse to look elsewhere, refuse to believe other things, just keep repeating to yourself the words of Scripture, say it, say it, you know, this is it, this is what God says. And I'm just going to be stubborn about that. You know, eventually, you know what the devil does? He says, man, I used to have a great deal of success with this person on this issue. Let's retreat. We've got to think this over. And so eventually, he'll leave you alone on an issue. He'll come back. He'll come back with other things. But if you keep being successful in those things too, eventually the devil says, hey, I don't have the resources to mess with somebody who's giving me such trouble. This person is just too surrendered. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, the devil is not the Holy Spirit, remember. The devil cannot be everywhere at once. The devil is not omnipotent. The, Lord. the devil has to allocate his resources carefully. And so he will work on what works best. He will work on what is gonna be most profitable. Keep trusting Him. God. Fix your eyes on Him. Alright. <clears throat> the greatest need of the world. God's love. In you. You've heard of the Beatles. They used to have a song called. All we need is love. And uh, that's about 40 years old now. 50 years old. And there's a lot of truth about that. Uh, secular. Even the secular world. Believes in that. But the love that the secular world believes in is not something that is very biblical in many ways. Love is usually viewed as passion or as a response to somebody nice 
But love is rarely thought of as a principle. Rarely thought of as a stand, regardless of circumstances. A lot of the love stories and the love songs have to do with mutual response to one another. But not as a principle. <clears throat> Abraham Maslow was a psychologist who made famous his hierarchy of needs. And he said that the <clears throat> most basic needs are actually physiological needs. And then after that would be, you know, like eating and sleeping. And then uh, after that would be uh, safety needs, and then belonging needs, and esteem needs, and then self-actualization. That's how he put it. In other words, feeling good about something that you're doing and some, you know, where you're going, the decisions you're making. Love <coughs> would be in the belonging needs. So he says, you need to eat more than you need to love. Or you need to eat, you need food more than you need love. But that is an evolutionary uh, construct. The truth of the matter is that people who are loved, and they know they are loved, can withstand just about anything in the world. Amen. Even lack of food, even great trouble, anything because love is a complete package is a complete package Friedrich Nietzsche if you read anything about philosophy or history or political history you know this is a scary scary dude <laughs> this is the guy that invented the whole idea about God is dead which Time magazine picked it of course he, he came up with that over a hundred years ago but he Time Magazine picked it up in 1960. The most famous cover of Time Magazine ever, still today, after 50 years, is that black cover that says, Is God Dead? Based on an essay by Nietzsche. Nietzsche was a, a philosopher who hated God, hated religion, hated everybody. He was one depressed, brilliant person. I really think he was thoroughly demon-possessed. And Nietzsche said something interesting. He says, before we can believe in redemption, which is what Christians, Christians preach, Christians must look more redeemed. Well, he's right there. And that is one of the great downs of most of the world when they look at the church. They say, you know what? I have a good job. I, I have a good education. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes. And I have my struggles. I look at you and I find that you have a good education, you have a good job, you pay your taxes, and you also have your struggles. I'm not sure what the difference is between you and me. Except that you go to church and, uh, and that you're supposed to do this or that. But the, the, the bottom line difference is, I don't see a lot of difference. And that, I believe, is one of the greatest reasons why we are not seeing amazing progress regarding the cause of Christ in the world. Just like you could have seen that in the first century of the Christian era. When the church was so young, they were in love with Jesus. And so the mission post was not somewhere in Africa or in the South Pacific. The mission post for them 
was outside of their front door. They, they, they lived Jesus. They lived God. God, they knew the love of God. They had everything. They, they did things that have not yet been done in 1900 years ever since. You read Acts chapter 4. How they had everything in common. How they provided for anyone as they had need. How they get left everything behind. I mean, we're not even close to that, are we? To say, yeah, my house, my, my car, my, you know, my possessions. Yeah, all that belongs to God. I, I just put it right there. Boom. Oh yeah, you see cases of people like that. But not the church as a whole. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer, he's quite a writer. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. In other words, it's not, the problem is not with, with the principles of being a Christian. It's with whether or not we really trust that and move forward with it. In name only is not being a Christian. And I'm speaking to myself on this too. In name only will not go very far. And that's why our neighbors are not tearing down our door to say, tell us about the God you know. He also says, the Bible, Chesterton also said, the Bible tells us to love our neighbors and also to love our enemies. Probably because they're generally the same people. <laughs> Could we love our enemies as well as we love our friends? You know, Jesus makes it very plain. He says, if you love those who love you only, how are you different than the Gentiles whom you despise? You know, the Jews despise the Gentiles as being outside of salvation. They call them dogs. He says, how are you different? Everyone loves somebody else who loves them. Even the, even the biggest criminals, even the, 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 the most miserable individuals, the most afar, apart from God, they love people. They love other people who love them. If you do the same, how are you different? Be ye perfect, he says, you know, Matthew 5. In other words, if you really want to be a Christian, that love needs to really work much beyond that. And you know what happens? What happens is that we don't have that capacity to love other people we don't love. That's not a riddle. It's, yeah. We don't have the capacity to love other people we don't love. And, and uh, here's a, 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 a very common proof. How many people you know get divorced? A lot of people get divorced. A lot of people in the church get divorced. Why do people get divorced? Well, the basic... You know, there might be financial issues, there might be infidelity, there might be, uh, you know, irreconcilable differences, all kinds of things. But the bottom line issue is, they stop loving each other. Maybe they never really did love each other to begin with, in the same way that God is trying to teach Christians to do this. What happens is this, as long as there's mutual love, you can sustain it in a, in a, in a kind of a... In a basic way, you can sustain. If you're loved sufficiently, you're going to respond because love elicits love. Right? 
But if one of the two in this couple, if one of the two stops loving and, and starts withdrawing, the other person may still love that person for a while. But what do you think happens eventually? That person will also withdraw. And it happens in a variety of ways. In most cases, if a, if a man doesn't care for his wife, she will be faithful for a while until she's had it. And then overnight, in his mind, overnight she says, forget it, that's it, I'm done. I'm walking out of this. He says, oh, where did that come from? That's been coming for 15 years, buddy. That's basically what it is. In other words, you don't love me. You haven't loved me for a while. And I'm just saying, enough with it. That's, net, that's, what, that's human love. Human love is sustainable by being mutual. But that's not Christian love. That's not the love of the sons and daughters of God. That is not what God intends for you and I, me to do. And that is what the world is not seeing because what we practice is mostly what the world also practices. Except that it's just a little bit more sanitized. This is an interesting story by Alan Peterson in this book, The Myth of the Greener Grass. The story goes, I just want to get even. This is a woman who came to a, to a lawyer and uh, wanted a divorce. She just, you know, had had it with her husband. I just want to get even. Before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. I mean, this is sad, but this, this happens a lot. Dr. Crane's suggestion, act as if you really loved your husband. After you've convinced him, Drop the bomb. In other words, really love him for a number of months. Just, just really love him. Accept him as he is. Love him. Give yourself to him. And, and then when he really thinks that you really love him, say, hey, I want a divorce. Yes, really going to hurt him. That sounds very cruel. But Dr. Crane had something in mind. She did that. Two months later, she practiced that. She really actually did love him and paid attention to him and was responsive to him and all of that. Two months later, Dr. Crane asked him, are you ready for a divorce? Are we ready now? Are you ready to drop the bomb? And she said, never. I've discovered I really do love him. <laughs> it goes back to what we said in the earlier, you know, talk faith until you have faith. In other words, practice it, and it'll catch up with you. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the rising sun. Not because I see it, but by it I can see all else. That's well said. In other words, you don't need to see the orb popping off up from the horizon. Because if you see everything else, everything is getting lighter. And you know that the sun is coming up. That's really the nature of Christianity. That's the nature of God's love in our lives. Everything else is affected by it. He also spoke about the four loves. This is a, a book, um, the four loves, uh, based on the Greek terms for that. Storge, affection, I probably don't need to go through that. Ergos, eros is passion, that blind, physical love. Um, the, all of these are valid to a certain degree. The warning with Eros is love begins to be a demon the moment it begins to be a god. That's, a well, that's well said too. Because Eros is, is a, a fairly self-centered type. You know, it's like I'm, I want to get something from you. 
Phileo is friendship, is companionship. That's the love that most of us know about and understand as love. That's the love that children have for their parents. That's the love that friends have for each other. That's the love that the husband and wives have for each other, basically. It's a mutual love. It's, a friend, it's based on friendship. Agape is that unconditional love caring regardless of circumstances. And that is God's love and that is not human in our condition today. That is a Christian virtue. Agape love, unconditional love, is the only love Christians can know and practice. This is the love that God, that Jesus told us to, to practice. Not the other. The Gentiles love, the Gentiles exercise phileo. The Gentiles love others because they're loved. But the Christians need to love others in spite of the fact that they may not be loved. And that is something that doesn't, gen doesn't generate with you in uh, Ellen White. And I have a, t a, a um, quote at the very end that shows that. Ellen White says, you cannot love others by trying, and she underlines the word trying, by trying to love others. What? And then she says, you must have the love of God in the heart. In other words, as much as I try to love others, it's not going to work. The only way it's going to work is if the love of God has taken a firm procession of my heart. When that happens, then it's a natural outflow of God's love. It is actually God loving others. God loving my enemies. In fact, you, it's almost an, uh, don't misunderstand me, it's almost like an out-of-body experience in the sense that you look, at, you look at yourself from outside and say, wow, look at this. I am being nice to this person. I actually care for this person. I actually want this person to be blessed when I couldn't care for them at all just six months ago. It's like, What's happening? You know it's not you. You know it's God at work in you. And so here's that text, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That is really what makes us look and sound and, and be like our God. That's, that's what makes us family with God. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the people that the Jews despised, do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. And Ellen White explains that that perfect, you know, some people use that text and get into fallacies of perfectionism. No. She explains that that is perfect in God's sphere, whereas we need to be perfect in our sphere. And those spheres are different from one another. In other words, our total trust in God. That's perfectly trusting God in that process, whereas God is perfect in uh, a technical way in addition to other things. You know the story in John 21 verse 
15 to 17. The story about Peter and how he had denied his Savior. Peter, the, most, the disciple who was most vocal about following Jesus, had denied his Savior three times. This is the guy that said, you are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, no flesh and blood has said, has, has, uh, you know, you didn't say this flesh, you know, it taught you this. The, the Spirit of God is the one that used you to say that, right? And yet this disciple is the one that denied Jesus publicly three times. And so three times Jesus asked him, do you really love me more than these? And the first time he asked, he used the, the word agape. So in public, again, Jesus gave him a chance to retrace his steps. Do you love me? Do you agape me with that love that is unconditional, that is a principle that is regardless of what I do or not do, regardless of whether you understand me or not, do you love me with that love more than these? And Peter answers, I know I appreciate you, because that's basically the concept of love in phileo. Phileo is I love you as long as you love me. So yes, I appreciate that love, I, I'm responsive to that love, but the word he used is the word phileo, not the word agape. He couldn't bring himself up to say, yes, I agape you, or I phileo you, you know, brotherly love. And Jesus, in spite of that, he says, tend my lambs. I'm going to trust you. Alright, so you don't, what you're really saying is that you don't love me as much as I love you. I'm still going to trust you. Take care of my lambs. A, third, a second time he asked, do you really love me? And he said, you know, that with agape. I know I appreciate you. He answered the same thing. Shepherd my sheep. He said that again. I'm trusting you with my people. And the third time, Jesus changed the verb. The third time Jesus says, do you really phileo me? You've been telling me you phileo me. You love me because you perceive love. And that you don't love me in spite of not perceiving love. Uh, do you phileo me? And that is why the text says that Peter got sad when Jesus asked him the third time. Do you phileo me? Because Jesus changed the verb. In other words, Jesus simply basically said, you know, I, all right, I give in. So you're not going to love me with agape love. Do you at least love me with a phileo love? And that made him sad because it's like a recognition, God, I can't fool you. I can't. I said in the past that I would die and I would go to jail. I would be with you all the way. But it proved that it didn't. I ran away. I denied you. I cannot tell you I love you with that, with that principle love. And so I, I yes, Lord, I, I filial you. I, I love you. But it is that much and not more. You know all things. You know I really filial you. And Jesus still said, tend my sheep. I still trust you. I love you. I, and you know what happened? This is an amazing thing about God. God does not withdraw that. God still treated Peter as if Peter was saying, I love you with an agape love. Oh, everything about me says I love you. It is Jesus reckoned. Here talk about faith. Jesus reckoned Peter as in love with him even though Peter was not. 
entrusted Peter with his most precious cargo, which are his sheep. Why? What did it do to Peter? What it did to Peter is over the next 30 years, Peter fell more and more and more and more in love with Jesus to the point that he would love him with that godly love. And when you read the books of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you find a man who is totally devoted to Jesus. And that is why when he was crucified like his Savior was, he says, don't do this, I don't deserve anything. Oh, my Savior, so much more than I am. So, oh, I, I'm in love with him. And so he says, please, please crucify me upside down. I'm not, I'm not there. But he has been there for me. It transformed him. John 13, 34 and 5, Jesus said the night he was betrayed, the night of the Passover, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Think about this. Jesus said, the world, the world, all men, says, the world will know you belong to me when you really love one another. He could have said, the world will really know you belong to me when you really love the world. Right? He didn't say that. He didn't say, I mean, that would be more difficult, right? To love total strangers, to love people that don't, don't have the same principles, etc. You know. But Jesus says, the world will know you love one another when you, I mean, the world will know you belong to me when you love one another. Because loving one another, truly loving one another is such an unheard of thing. It is out of this planet. And when you sustainly love people in spite of what they do, in spite of what they say, Others close by will start paying attention to that and say, Hey, there is something about that. There is something about that. Yes. A quick comment. Why then, as Seventh-day Adventists, do we make Sabbath keeping the sign? Now, I'm a creationist, I'm a Sabbath keeper. When Jesus says, By this shall all men know. The mental ascent of the church of his day crucified Jesus. They were Seventh-day Adventists, tithe-beggars. They were destitute of agape love. They strung up their creator. Why can't we as a movement make that our sign? In Ezekiel, we're told that this is a sign that we belong to Jesus. And it says, so you will know that you belong to me. So this is not a sign, this is more of a sign for us as we belong to him than for the world. Which? Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping. And the love is the sign for the world. Exactly. <laughs> he got it. He got it. He basically agreed with that. All right. Um, some of you may know this story. Svea Flood was a missionary, a um, a Swedish missionary who, along with her husband David, went to Ndora in the heart of Africa. This is 1929. 
and in 1929 in Dalara in that area uh, those tribes had you know hardly had ever seen a white person there was a mission compound with some Europeans and Americans there they began there but under Svia's great burden for the lost she says, Let's, we're too far away from the people. We need to be where the people are. Let's move out there. Everybody said, don't do that because that's too dangerous. These are, these are man-eating people. They, they, they kill each other. They're going to think that you're a spirit. They're going to kill you. Because, you know, white people, they look different and all that. And so, don't do that. But they still, they went there. They talked with the, the elders of the, of the village. The elders said, oh, you spook us. And you know, we don't know, you know, we, we can't let you live here. But they allowed them to build a little hut half a mile away from the village. And so they built the hut half a mile away. And that is it. Talk about evangelism. When the closest you can get to a single individual is a half a mile away. You know? So what do you do? How do you evangelize? How do you, how do you share your faith? Well, Svia was a, ma a woman who just was in love with Jesus. And just in love with Jesus and in love with people because she was in love with Jesus. And she kept praying, Lord, open up a way. Open up a door. So by and by, a little boy of eight uh, ventured himself to the white couple's hut to sell them eggs. And so she bought all the eggs she could. Says, this is my first contact. Eight-year-old boy. And then says, can you come back again? I'll need more eggs later. <laughs> and uh, so he came back a week later. And then for months, he just kept coming back once a week. The only contact the floods had with the, with the world out there that they weren't to evangelize was the eight-year-old boy once a week. Eventually she got pregnant. And uh, she, she got, oh, oh, there was, there was another couple, by the way. When they went there, the Ericsons went there too. There were two couples, and they went there. But the Ericsons got so discouraged that they were living a half mile away and that they had no contact with anybody. This was like, you know, this is a waste of time. And so they left in discouragement and went back to the compound and said, well, let's do something else. So this, the floods were there. Eventually she got pregnant in nine days before she gave birth to her baby girl, she got malaria. That's not good. I've had malaria in 2001 and I nearly died uh, from it. It was, it was not good. 17 days after she delivered the baby, she died. So what do you have? You have people who, who are doing everything to reach out to the lost. They are willing to sacrifice more than all the other missionaries. They're going out there. The, 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 the other couple finally gives up. And now, the one soul and heart of this whole movement, Svea Flood, dies. Without a single comfort, without, a, without anybody having changed their lives only having had contact with an eight-year-old boy once a week for a number of months. 
Oh, she talked to him about Jesus. She told him about stories from the Bible and all that. But what, you know, what is that? I mean, David, her husband, was so discouraged, was so depressed about this. He says, God abandoned us. So he took the baby, he left the place, he went to the compound, he gave the baby to the Ericsons. He says, you raise him, I'm going back to, to, to uh, Sweden. Eight months later, the Ericsons die of a disease. Say, man, the devil is just having a field day with this. The little girl, Aggie, was finally ended up in a, a missionary's, a American missionary's hands. Those missionaries, after a number of years of being there, go back to America. She grows up, she marries a minister in uh, Minnesota. And one day, it, and then the minister eventually ends up teaching in one of the Christian schools. And one day, she receives a newspaper in the mail in Swedish. She doesn't know Swedish because she was raised by Americans, and she, but she recognizes a picture of the mother's, her mother's tombstone in Dolera. And she says, this is important. I got to get to know this. What's the story behind this? She, want, she goes to a professor who reads this story. She gets very excited. A, a year later, there was a worldwide convocation of missionaries and evangelists in London. She goes to London. And one of the main speakers is somebody from Dolera. And he says, there are now 110,000 Christians in the region. And she meets with him afterwards and says, tell me more about this. And they start tying the knots together. And he finally says, I am the eight-year-old boy. It was Via Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who sold eggs to your mother before you were born. That little boy took what he knew and passed it on to other kids. And they talked about Jesus and about the stories of the Bible were passed on to the parents. The parents were so excited about that, they really, they embraced that. The parents, without any influence from any missionary, decided to establish a school, a Christian school, without a Bible, just based on stories from missionaries, through an eight-year-old boy, to teach that to others. And that grew and grew and grew until some missionaries finally came and, 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 and they helped him. Now there's over 100,000. Why? Because one woman was able to love others like Christ loves us. She just would not give up. She would she was, she was just love others. She said, oh, I need to do this. I need to share this with whoever, whatever God gives me. Oh, what God did with that one single, just, I mean, it's a nothing opportunity. Think about it. And all the, all the setbacks. And what God did with that. 1 John 4, 19 and 20 says, We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, 
He is a liar for the one who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So here's a gauge. Here's a very good gauge as to how much you really love God. Evaluate how much you love other people. How much you love strangers, perfect strangers. How much you love other people who are not like you, who you would not normally be friends with. How much you love them. That's how much you really love God. And so that's a gauge. It's a good gauge. Because that tells me, Oh Lord Jesus, I better know you better because I think that I love you more than I really do. And that's why when the love of God takes possession of your heart, you are able to love other people in your astonishment that you are, that you actually do. That you say, wow, look, look at what God is trying to do. Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? You're the salt of the earth. In other words, you are the element that changes everything around in the world. It is through you that it will give flavor to others. It is through you that it will preserve others, just like salt does. How can it be made salty again if you're becoming tasteless? In other words, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. So what makes salt become tasteless in this context? Staleness, right? Staleness, when, they, when salt has been around for too long without being used. Right? You let it sit there and the, the humidity and the elements and stuff, you know, all of a sudden, you know, then you, you, you put a pinch of salt in your tongue and, and it doesn't taste like salt anymore. It tastes like granules, like little rocks. Why? Because it just sat there. What's the equivalent? What is the spiritual equivalent? Salt is a Christian flavor in the world. Agape love is such Christian flavor. Agape love is such Christian So when we refuse to put that love to practice, when we refuse to do that, we become stale. Uh, you cannot wait. You cannot say, oh, I just don't love people enough. I don't love God enough. So I, when I get my act together and I really love people, then I'll do that. I'll reach out to my neighbor and I'll, and I'll share with others and I'll, and I'll do other things for other people. No, you can't do that. It is as you know God, as you learn of Him, as you engage with Him, that you must be salt, that you must be put to work on behalf of other things, of the people. And that is what keeps you relevant in connecting with others. What makes Christianity become tasteless? A lack of Christian love. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 36-38, seeing the multitudes, He felt compassion for them because they, they were distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Distressed and downcast. You know, those are two interesting terms. And in the Greek, it involves distress. Downcast is correct, you know. That's in more modern, modern versions, they, they have, that's more accurate. Distressed is what sheep are when they get bugs or when they get attacked. You know, sheep are very fragile little creatures, really are. 
And we're called sheep, you know, by God. We're sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And, and sheep are not the most athletic animals you have ever seen, right? You know, they're not like gazelles or, you know, or like tigers. Sheep are fat, round, with skinny legs. Whoop! And sheep are so awkward. Now, sheep are not goats. That's a different story. Goats can climb everywhere, but sheep don't. And so when a sheep, because sheep are kind of, you know, they don't have a very a, a good depth of vision. They, you know, they only see a few feet, and then after that, it gets blurry. So what happens is that they nibble away following somebody else's rump. You know, they say, oh, okay, you're going that way? Yeah, I'll go that way. Yeah, you go that way? I'll go that way. You know, and so that's why sheep tend to eat around the same place because nobody takes off the initiative to go somewhere. But when somebody does, they follow. And so, but they don't, they don't, they don't take stock of, oh, that's a big mountain. No, they just go, they go, and they start climbing, and then all of a sudden, whoop! Downcast. You know, have you seen bugs, you know, when you were a kid and you looked at these bugs and, and when you put them upside down, you know, all their six legs are going That's the sheep when it's downcast. What am I going to do now? Has no resource, no resource to turn itself around. And I can imagine that sheep going, bah, help me up here. And the other sheep saying, oh, we don't know what to do. You know, they don't have horns, they don't have any strength, they don't have, you know, they don't work together in a group. And so they're all sort of around that downcast sheep, nib, you know, and they nibble away. Says, so you know, look at Lucy out there. She's, you know, she's upside down. I hope that the shepherd comes soon because she's not, she's not doing well. That's why sheep need a shepherd. And shepherds keep an eye on sheep. And when they see it, what happens is that they can actually die. If a sheep remains that way for a number of hours, they develop certain gases, you know, the, the bodies just don't function very well, and they can, get, they can get killed. Unless the shepherd gets there in time to say, Oh, hey, up you go, you know, let's turn you around. That's exactly what Jesus saw when he saw people. Like sheep without a shepherd, downcast and distressed. And he felt compassion for them. He felt compassion for them. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. There are so many sheep. There are so many people that could respond to me, but look at their state of affairs. They're miserable. Look at, they really need help. Are you going to give them help? I just, I'm, I'm in a recruiting mission, God says. Please pray. It is interesting, God did not ask us to pray for more souls. He asked us to pray for more people to go get them. He's got plenty of those people that would respond to God if he had someone to reach out to them. Compassionate love made Jesus reach out to those in need. How are we to do this? Well, the principle is very clear in Mark 4. The whole principle of evangelism. You know, we're talking about the need of the world, which is the love of God in you. 
Mark 4, the kingdom of God is like a man. I got one minute. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts up and grows how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first a blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Three things. Sowing, growing, and reaping. Basic, clear. You don't have to get, you know, this, this is not rocket science. This is the way God deals with people. This is, this is the stages. These are the stages. This is the way He intends for us to work. Sowing, growing, reaping. And sowing is your responsibility, my responsibility. That's the farmer's responsibility. And that takes faithfulness. You just got to keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing good things for people. Keep sowing the seed. Keep connecting with them. Keep being a blessing to them. Keep, keep uh, doing something good for them. Keep showing them God's love. Keep in contact. The angels won't do it for you. God does not step in and say, step aside, let me do it. God says, I want you to do it. I'm going to use you to do it. Alright, that's faithfulness. Growing is the business of God. Sometimes that's where we get it mistaken. We think that we need to grow people. We don't grow people. God grows people. Just like God grows a crop. And the farmer has nothing to do with growing a crop. The farmer does everything before that. And then everything after that. But the farmer looks at the crop grow. That's what God does. That's God's business. And that takes power. Absolute power. And the last thing is reaping. And that is the combination between you and God. When you understand God in, in connection with that person, when you should invite them, when, when we should take it to the next level for that person to decide to surrender to Jesus, to accept what the Bible says about this teaching or that teaching, that takes timing when we see the evidence. The first stage is the one God wants the church involved. I have more things that I could say. A few ideas about sowing evangelism, but uh, our time is over. Uh, this, this little book is a good, helpful book that you could uh, acquire. Bridges 101, How to Connect with Some People. You might want to get a hold of that by Ruthie Jacobson. Um, this is a dynamic process. Sowing, growing, and reaping. All right? And so if you, if you think of a year around, you, you do some sowing over a number of months. And the, const, the growing is constant. Constantly people are growing in the process. And eventually, later, you're going to start reaping. If you're in contact and if you're sowing. And you're constantly sowing and you're constantly reaping in that sense. You know this story about a girl who was walking on the beach. And there were hundreds of thousands... Uh, starfishes on the shore and she knew you know under the sun they're gonna die they need to be in the water but they have been washed over on the shore and she started throwing them back and throwing them back you know I mean one after another I mean there are hundreds of thousands out there and so an old man following behind her says what is she doing it's finally caught up to her and says honey you think you're going to clean up this whole beach? You're going to save every one of these starfishes? Why are you doing this? Don't you realize that 
it really won't make a difference. And she got quiet, stooped down and picked up one more and threw it. Says, it makes a difference to this one. And that's the attitude we need to make. We're not going to win the world. We need to win them one by one. We need to reach out to them one by one. Well, our time is up. Let me just uh, close. Let's sing together. Let's sing together into my heart. Can we do that? And then out of my heart. Into my heart and out of my heart. Into my heart, into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Of my heart, out of my heart, shine out of my heart, Lord Jesus, shine out today, shine out away, shine out of my heart. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this six hours to explore, even with limitations, some of the love of God, some of the plan of God, and some of what God intends to see happen in our lives and in the lives of others as we engage with them. Oh Lord Jesus, we say to you today, thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for loving us with an everlasting love. Thank you that there was nothing that persuaded you to leave us alone, but that you came to this world and you showed us the character of your Father and you died on our behalf and that you intercede in heaven on our behalf and that you are willing to exchange your life for ours even now. You are willing to live in our lives and thus give us the power to overcome sin, the power to become children of God, though yet it doesn't appear as it should be. Help us, Lord, to reckon ourselves dead to sin Help us, Lord, to believe in your promises. Help us to refuse to look anywhere else other than fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be your instruments for the sake of a world who is desperately in need of your love, desperately in need of catching a glimpse of the true God of heaven. Lord Jesus, if we don't do that, if we are not the salt of the earth, if we do not have the compassion Jesus had 
as we look at this world like sheep distressed and downcast, who will you have? Father, we say to you today, count on me, count on me. And I want to offer, Lord, I want to offer everyone in this audience today that if they can say, count on me, in spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my fears, count on me, I pray that they may raise their hand up to heaven and that angels of heaven may delight to see this commitment. We're saying to you, count on me by the love of God. Count on me to love others. Thank you. Thank you that you are counting on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.